Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. All right. Let's uh, let's begin with prayer. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you for this day. We thank you for bringing us here safely, and we thank you for your word. We ask, O oh Lord, that you would please bless us as we uh, spend some time examining your word today. Please uh, shine the light of your illumination upon our hearts and minds so that we might understand your word. And we pray these things for your glory and for our own good. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Please turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 60. Chapter 60 of Isaiah. And we'll be looking at verses 18 to 21. Isaiah 60, verses 18 to 21. Isaiah 60, verse 18. Violence shall no more be heard in your land, devastation or destruction within your borders. You shall call your walls salvation and your gates praise. The sun shall be no more, your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light. But the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself, for the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of mourning shall be ended. Your people shall be righteous. They shall possess the land forever. The branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I might be glorified. All right. If you have a cross-reference Bible, you can see that one of the references in this passage uh, is to Revelation chapter 21. Let's turn there. Revelation 21. So in Isaiah... While you're turning to Revelation 21, in Isaiah, the prophet looks forward to a time when possession of the land in peace forever will be attended by the replacement of the sun and the moon by Yahweh's own brilliant presence. But the Apostle John, in the Revelation, displays what appeared to Isaiah to be the land of Canaan, had in fact reference to the New Jerusalem of John's vision. So let's look at verse, starting at verse 22 of chapter 21 of Revelation, Revelation 21, 22. And of this use of Isaiah by John, uh, Francis Turton says this, the Holy Spirit 
who is the best interpreter of himself, transfers this prophecy to the heavenly Jerusalem. So let's look at chapter 21 and verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its lights the na- will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. Verse 5, and night will be no more. They will no they will they will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. So what Isaiah, from his place in redemptive history, when he was given this vision, what Isaiah perceived to be the restoration of Israel to the land. The Apostle John discloses to be the possession by the Gentiles, the nations, of the coming new Jerusalem. The not yet aspect of the kingdom of God, long awaited by the saints, and indeed by all creation. So the point is, when the prophet Isaiah was looking forward to a time when God would restore peace to the land, That language is used, the land. It's described as being characterized by a time in which there will be no need for sun or moon, and Yahweh will be their light. The reference Bible, if you have one, uh, Turretin, one of our brighter lights in the Reformed tradition, make it plain that the fulfillment of this prophecy is this language in Revelation 21. What is being discussed, we are told, in Revelation 21 is the New Jerusalem, which we are told is also characterized by the lack of need for sun and moon because God himself and his Lamb will be its light. And then it says, by its light, Will the Gentiles walk? That's what nations is translated uh, from, the word Gentiles. Are there any comments or questions about that before we move on in our discussion? I mean, it's pretty plain in the Old Testament when Isaiah is talking. He's talking in terms of national Israel, and he's talking in terms of the land. And what land could he be speaking of but the land of Canaan? So in prophetic perspective, that was the environment in which they moved. They thought of God's people as national Israel. They thought of God's dwelling place as the land of Canaan, living in the midst of his people. Well, that's still true, but the outward form, in the Old Testament form, of what that looked like has fallen away. And what's left in its place is the substance of God dwelling in his people 
dwelling with his people. And here, it's described in these terms as the new Jerusalem. Yes, sir. Is that the new earth? It's connected with that. It's all part of the new heavens and new earth. Um, I think that when the Old Testament talks in terms of the land of Canaan, that um, in light of what the apostles are telling us, in this language too, what's in view, or we could say the fulfillment of that, those prophecies having to do with the land in Canaan, are expanded to include the the new heavens and new earth. But in the meantime, it's also... uh, it can also be said to be fulfilled, those prophecies about the land of Canaan, in the kingdom of God, even in its more spiritual aspects. So, yes, there's a terrestrial fulfillment of the land prophecies of the Old Testament, and we apply that to the new heavens and new earth, which will have substance. Because we will have bodies, spiritual bodies, that will habit, inhabit the new heavens and new earth. But also in the more spiritual uh, aspect of things can we say um, can we find a fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies having to do with the nation and the land because the kingdom exists even apart from I mean the new heavens and new earth haven't come yet but we are still dwelling with God in a sense in the new Jerusalem and we shall move on to discuss that now if there are any other comments or questions if there are no other (coughs) comments or questions let's look at uh, this same chapter and starting at verse 9 is that Revelation? it is Revelation uh, 21 and verse 9 sorry Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Before we move on, who's the bride? Who or what is the, is the bride? The church. Everybody understands that imagery, that, that metaphor that's used in the scriptures. Sometimes the church is described as the body, meaning the body of Christ, him being the head. But also the bride and bridegroom is, is, is a, an image. And here we see an angel saying to the, uh, the apostle, he says, come and I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. If it could not be more explicit, the bride means the wife of the Lamb. Who is the Lamb? The Lord Jesus Christ, obviously. Okay, next verse. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a high, a great high mountain, and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of, out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels. 
and on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. South, three gates. West, three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. You'll see that the city, as the chapter goes on, the city is described, you know, the first gate, you know, the streets, uh, the, the gates, jasper, sapphire, etc., etc. Very detailed uh, thing, very glorious image of great beauty. Now, a lot of us have come from dispensationalist churches, um, I, myself included. I started off a Roman Catholic, then... The scriptures led me out of Roman Catholicism into Christianity in general. I went to a dispensationalist church, which was a Calvary chapel, and that was sort of a way station between Rome and the Reformed faith for me. But many of us have a similar story. that We, at one time or another, have been dispensationalists, or at least been members of a dispensationalist church. And I remember one of the lessons involving a large overhead um, screen presentation about the New Jerusalem and on it was a giant cube descending out of the clouds and this cube um, was the New Jerusalem and to the mind of the dispensationalists that's a literal actual city that we will inhabit in the future um, but I think Revelation 21 is not being read plainly. What do you think? Let's look at verse 10 again. Or actually verse 9 again. There's a verb here. The angel says, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Next verse showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. So you can't get away from the conclusion that when he sho- this angel shows John the city, he's showing him the bride. It's the bride that is being described in these figurative, metaphorical ways, all these precious stones, the streets of gold, the walls, the foundations, as this thing um, called the New Jerusalem. So the city, the in, the habitation of Christ with His people, the brood, the, the bridegroom with the bride is the New Jerusalem. Any comments or questions about that? So if if the bride is the New Jerusalem, and we start reading these things more literally in that sense, then then what, what do you do with the Gentiles who have been saved? I mean, wouldn't this lead someone to despair? That 
only the ones, only those who are Jews in Jerusalem would be the bride of Christ? And that doesn't, that doesn't. Okay, so you're pointing to the fact that it mentions in verse 12, uh, the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed on these gates. If you were to reject the notion that the church is Israel, you would have to say that the city is a habitation for people of Jewish descent only. Wouldn't you? But what if you took the position that I believe that I've made the case for the last few months from the scriptures, that Christ is the true Israel, and if you are in union with him by faith, whether you're Jew or Gentile, that you are the sons of Abraham, that you are Israel, then this doesn't present any difficulties. Let's look a little aside here to the epistle of James. And I would say maybe just a reminder from, I think you said this in, I don't know if it was last week or a previous lesson, but not only are we redefining what is Israel to be the church, but we're oftentimes redefining Gentile to be those outside of a relationship with Christ. It's not necessarily ethnic. That's, yes, that's right, exactly. The scriptures do make this point uh, in several places in the New Testament, um, especially Peter at the, at the first chapter, I believe, of his first letter. He says, keep your conduct, he's talking to the church, he tells them to keep your conduct among the Gentiles pure. You'll remember that we did discuss that. So there's a reorientation in the thinking that comes about by virtue of the person and work of Christ, that we now understand Israel to be Christ and those in union with him. And true Jewishness is defined by virtue of union with Christ. And if you are not united with Christ, you are a Gentile. And you'll notice, in the, we'll look back at Revelation, I can't remember the verse, but it says that the, the Gentiles are outside the gates. And that's the idea there. The idea, they're talking about spiritual Israel, not ethnic Israel, in the book of Revelation. Okay, so let's look at the opening of the letter of James. says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. Who is James writing this letter to? Is this the epistle to the Hebrews? Who were also Christians, by the way. We'll look at Hebrews shortly. But he's writing to Christians. Later on, I can't remember if it's in this chapter or the next chapter. He identifies his audience as those who trust in Christ. Um, if I could just locate that for you. I'm looking in the first chapter. For that language. I hadn't planned on coming to James. I would have been better prepared. I apologize. Uh, 
Um, but if you look through the first and second chapter, I think it's probably the first chapter, you'll see that he's identifying uh, that he's not just addressing a group of Jews who don't happen to believe in Jesus when he calls these people, these recipients, 12 tribes. Uh, he's talking about the church. And, you know, if you go back to Revelation, there's talk about, let's go to Revelation 21 again. It's actually in Revelation 14, isn't it? I think it occurs twice in the book of Revelation. But, yeah, in, in chapter 14, there's a discussion of the 144,000. 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, James helps us understand who the 12 tribes of Israel are, doesn't he? Because Christians, the people of God, let's say, the elect who are truly by the Spirit united to their Messiah, whether you're talking about saints in the Old or the New Testament, these people are in the conception of God, Israel. They're the 12 tribes. So there's a, there's a right way and a wrong way, isn't there, to approach this discussion of the New Jerusalem. There's like a literal way and then a literalistic way to interpret the, the New Jerusalem. Because if you go on in the chapter of 21, the measure of the city and its walls, he's told, uh, the city lies four square, length the same as its width, Measuring the city with its rod, 12,000 stadia, its length and width and height are equal. That's the idea of perfection. But you can approach this and you can say, well, how long was a stadia to the Romans and the Greeks? Okay, it was so long. How much is 1,200 this way, this way, this way? Well, let's make a presentation. We'll present the city coming down out of the sky, and it will be this size, because that's what it says. It will be this size, and this gate will be of this, this precious stone. And that's what we have to look forward to. That's what we have to, to hope for and expect. So that's to interpret this passage, this language, literalistically. But it's not... It, it's not getting close to understanding the chapter, the, this, this revelation given to the apostle about the new Jerusalem in the manner in which we are explicitly told when it says, I'm going to show you the bride, the, the wife of the lamb. And then he showed him this city. If we don't take that instruction seriously, we will get out our rulers and start measuring out how big this city is going to be. That's not the point. The point is its beauty, its perfection, its completeness, and moving on, no need for a temple anymore because its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. 
John. That's interesting. Uh, when you look at it the way you're describing how the shunned the bride, uh, but yet in the description, again, if we back away from a very literalistic view of a, a building in a city, the description of it in 12 to, to 15, the uh, first part of the gates have the name of the 12 tribes. Then in verse 14, we have the addition, the 12 names of the 12 apostles. So even if you wanted to cut this literalistically, they still run into a problem that both groups are being viewed in unison as the bride. It is only a concept of Israel that incorporates the leadership of the 12 apostles that will avoid that contradiction. Any other comments or questions? Uh, James chapter 2, verse 1. 2 and 1. Okay, brothers, could, yeah, thanks. No partiality as you hold in faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of Lords. There you go. So, not that we needed to display to uh, this group uh, that when James is writing his epistle, it's to believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. But if anyone out in you know cyberspace or uh, needs that demonstrated, then chapter two, verse one. Thank you for uh, pointing that out, finding it. Uh, yes, John. I was just going to say, I think one of the things that I was infected by early on in life was the concept of some numerology. Yeah. And so you have the number seven as being a perfect number, the number six being a uh, man's number, and number 12 being a fulfillment number. There's, there's all these things that 12 was a good thing for. And so up until today, I not thought that there was going to be a board cube coming down, but I did, I did think there was going to be a new earth, just like I'm going to have a new body. There is. And so, no, the, I did not mean to imply that there was so going to be. It's important somehow to make sure people do realize that we're not casting out the, uh, the concept of a new earth with our casting out of the cube descending. Yeah, I think that uh, the scriptures are just as clear uh, that there will be a new heavens and a new earth. We will inhabit them with these self-same bodies with which we are raised or transformed. Only, I think the confession says, possessing new properties. So our Lord went into the grave with his body, actual human body, fully human. And with that self-same body was he raised, but only with new properties. Properties fitted to inhabiting the new heavens and the new earth, as will ours be uh, when the time comes um, at, the, at the resurrection. And we will inhabit the new heavens and the new earth. They are uh, an actual place. I expect that it will be this place, just purified by fire, whereas, the, you know, whereas before it was by water. But it will be, in a very real sense, new, and we do have that to look forward to. As one understanding of the fulfillment of the land of Canaan promises that look forward to a restoration of God's people to the land, we can see that as being fulfilled in the new earth as an actual physical place. However, we are described as inhabiting the new Jerusalem, which is a part of the new heavens and the new earth already in this, this sense. Let's, well, let me read you this small paragraph I prepared and then move on to Hebrews 12. While you're going there, I'll go ahead and uh, 
Read this. The groom and the bride dwelling together in glory and universal rule is the heavenly Jerusalem. In a sense, we're not there yet. It is not a literal city. Rather, we are told that it is the church. Certainly, an eternity dwelling with Christ in spiritual bodies, that is, the same physical bodies with which we shall be raised, albeit with new properties, will involve an actual local place called the new heavens and the new earth, which may include glorious cities. The church itself, we are explicitly told, is the city figuratively figuratively depicted here. And we inhabit this city now by being in the church, by being united to Christ. To wit, Hebrews chapter 12. Okay, Hebrews 12. Verses 22 and 23. Hebrews 12, 22 and 23. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn, who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. All right, let's go back to verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, etc., and to the assembly of the firstborn. So, the first thing I want to draw your attention to, have come. What's the literal plain reading of that verb? It's happened. It's accomplished. You have come to Mount Zion. So, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. So the literal plain reading of this, this phrasing, this, this language, is that we have already, Christians, believers in Christ, we have come to the heavenly Jerusalem that we just talked about in Revelation 21. There's some not yet aspects of our coming to that city. We are not fully ruling and reigning with him in glory yet. But there's an already sense in which this has been fulfilled. We are told that we have come to the heavenly Jerusalem. There are not two heavenly Jerusalems. I'm not going to posit that. That would be pretty reckless in my view. So the church and the Lord Jesus Christ dwelling together in the kingdom. In the already or the not yet sense. Is the heavenly Jerusalem. Prophesied of. Uh, and discussed in the Revelation, um, as we saw. Mount Zion, it says. So much for interpreting the prophets literally, when the New Testament tells us plainly the real meaning of the return to Mount Zion, or to Palestine, where Mount Zion is, was. Let's go back. Keep a thumb here in 
Hebrews 12 if you like, but let's go back to Isaiah 60. Let's look at some more of this language here in this prophecy. Isaiah 60. Let's go up to verse 13 and 14 to get some context. Isaiah 60, 13 and 14. The glory of Lebanon shall come to you, the cypress, the plain, and the pine, to beautify the place of my sanctuary. And I will make the place of my feet glorious. The sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you, and all who despised you shall bow down at your feet. They shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. So in the immediate context of this language that we see is fulfilled in the church, we see this language here about Zion in the the immediate context, the same prophecy of Isaiah. City of the Lord and Zion. If you were to look at the first 13 verses of this chapter in Isaiah, you'd see that the nations are also being discussed. Let's see. If you look at verse 10. Foreigners shall build up your walls, and the kings shall minister to you. So foreigners, the idea there is the Gentiles. You'll see some other language throughout these first 13 chapters. So while the prophecy is looking forward to this restoration of Zion, you also see discussion of Gentiles coming in. Now, granted, it's not as clear, but that's not the nature of Old Testament prophecy, to be explicitly clear all the time. Let's turn back to uh, Hebrews 12. Assembly of the firstborn, that is, those literally gathered unto the firstborn son. Who's the firstborn son? The Lord Jesus. So, once again, we see the prophets talking a certain way. They spoke that way that they did because of the place they were in in redemptive history. Everything was understood in terms of Jew and Gentile, Israel and the nation. When we get to the New Testament, we understand better, in light of the more clear revelation that we have from the apostles, as they interpret and apply those Old Testament passages, about the restoration of Israel to the land, to Mount Zion. We are given to know and to understand that this is fulfilled by Jew or Gentile, Israel or the nations gathered together around this Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the new definition. Indeed, it's always been the definition. 
of who the people of God are. And this is a single people with a single head, one body with one head, one vine with various branches, a single house of which both we and Moses are members. As uh, the writer of the epistle to the Hebrews says, we looked at that at the beginning of this course. And the conclusion is inescapable that the dispensationalist, I argue, the dispensationalist doctrine that God has two peoples can't be sustained by a read of the New Testament. It can be, it can and must be maintained by a, a literalistic read of the Old Testament, but Christians aren't at liberty to read their Old Testaments divorced from their New Testaments, which is what you have to do, I argue, in order to stay a dispensationalist. With all due respect. Any comments or questions? If you have one and you're not sure if we should talk about that, do it anyway. I run out of material. We've only got, we've still got another seven minutes. I'd only add that besides ignoring the New Testament, they also ignore a lot of material and continuity in the Old Testament. They keep creating these different divisions is to ignore the continuity of God and his covenant okay. throughout all generations. Yeah, John's observing not only is it to uh, sort of create a discontinuity, dispensationalism, dispensationalism not only creates a, a sharp discontinuity between this present administration of the covenant of grace, but it also breaks up the Old Testament as well and posits discontinuities between various phases of God's administration of the same covenant of grace. Um, yeah, good point. Someone now made the point, but I didn't have a chance to develop it before I brought it to your attention, is that, you know, the, the Old Testament was written across a very long period of time starting with Moses and the Pentateuch, you have a very long time before you get to Malachi, the last of the prophets, the last of the writing prophets. So over the course of those centuries, you had later writers interpreting former writers. And I thought that's interesting. It's not just a question of adhering to what the apostles say when they're handling those Old Testament texts, which has been the, the focus of this course. But it's also, and this is where my lack of preparation on this point uh, will become obvious, later writers in the Old Testament period, also their handling of earlier writers of the Old Testament also does not support 
dispensationalist ideas about this rigid demarcation between dispensations and God's dealings with humanity in the Old Testament. If I had done that work, um, I might have been able to justify that claim uh, before you, but I don't expect you to take it on faith. But it's something to look at. Like you can look at Joshua or things like that, which came after the, uh, the Exodus, and, you, and the prophets. And you can look at how they're handling some of these Old Testament prophecies and, and things. And uh, you'd see that uh, God's manner of dealing with his people reveals continuity. I mean, at a minimum, it reveals continuity in substance rather than discontinuity in substance. God will change how he deals with people uh, with surface things, non-essentials but for instance in his dealings with fallen humanity through the covenant of grace um, in substance his dealings with fallen man has been the same. That you put your faith in this coming Messiah or this Messiah who has come and will come again and you will be justified on the basis of that faith. Whereas you began guilty, you will be justified by adhering to Christ. This Christ means anointed one or Messiah. And that's, that's the substance of the covenant of grace. And it's always been that way. Paul makes that point about Abraham being our father and his faith being like ours. And even in this letter... talks about the failure of the people to enter God's rest in chapter 4. It talks about the failure of God's people to enter the land of Canaan, which was a type and a picture of God's rest. And the failure of that people boiled down to their not having faith. And this faith always has the same object. It always is the same in substance. And this writer also says that those people were gospelized, evangelized, as were we when they were in the desert. They heard the gospel as we did, but it was not met with faith. Now, you can't describe that generation as having heard the gospel as we have only it didn't they did not meet it with faith and adopt a system of salvation or of God's dealings with man in substance fallen man the way dispensational dispensationalism often has And if there are no other comments or questions, yes. My, my comment would be one of the the criticisms I have of the dispensationalists who take the literalistic approach is that if you do that, you're actually limiting the promise or the fulfillment, in my opinion. So if you think that a literal 
50 by 50 by whatever it is, the city is coming down and it's going to be in a literal Jerusalem. Well, the promise is actually the entire earth. The, you know, the entire earth is the Lord's and he's going to reclaim all of it. And so you're actually limiting it uh, to be much smaller than what it really is. And, and to me, this, this language with all these uh, precious stones it's trying in human language to actually describe something even more glorious. And, and so it, it, it almost reminds me of like when Jesus came and he healed, he healed the person. But first he said, I forgive you your sins. And then all the Pharisees balked and said, well, who can forgive sins but God alone? And he says, well, t to prove to you that I can forgive sins, get up your mat, get up, take your mat, and, and walk. So the greater fulfillment was act, or the greater promise was actually the guy receiving forgiveness of sins. The, the literal healing is testimony, but the, the greater is actually the spiritual. I think next time, uh, we've only got two classes left. Uh, one of them is going to be involving um, the secret rapture doctrine. The other one will include a comment upon, it won't be an exhaustive refutation of it, but a comment upon the charge of anti-Semitism that's lodged against covenant theology by some dispensationalists. By saying that the church is Israel. By doing that, it is argued uh, we're being anti-Semitic. But I think this goes to um, the prospect of flipping the coin. Because if, if your doctrine, if your interpretation of scripture is such that you assign to the Jewish people who are ethnically Jews simply an earthly inheritance, that they're God's earthly people, while we Gentiles are God's heavenly people, which is the language of classic dispensationalism. We could turn that back and say that's anti-Semitic. The question isn't who's being pro or anti-Semitic. The question is, what do the apostles teach? The apostles teach that <coughs> Jewishness is to be understood spiritually. The true Jew is the one who has faith in Christ, the Messiah, God's anointed one promised to Israel of old. Um, anyway, I'll let that go until next week. I, I don't even know if I'll bring it up again next week now because I've said probably as much as I want to say about that. But at the opening of chapter four of Hebrews, uh, chapter four of Hebrews, therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who had listened. So, you know, Paul in Romans 4 talks about how we have the same faith as Abraham. That's the faith that justifies us and Abraham. And Hebrews 4 tells us they heard the same gospel we did. It's hard to say that God's dealings with his Old Testament people is anything different in substance than his dealings with us, his 
New Testament people. Again, composed of Jew and Gentile together. So anyway, so we have to, we're out of time. Let's close with prayer. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. We praise you and bless your holy name for your goodness unto us in Christ. Help us to understand the prophecies in the Old Testament, how they are interpreted in the New. We ask, O Lord, that you would please also prepare our hearts now to come into your presence, to offer you spiritual worship. We ask you to strengthen us for this great task. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.